then tune in Thursdays from 9 till noon for Jazz Till Noon. Join us as we explore the vivid underworld of other jazz with your hosts, Kirsten and Michael. Also tune in on Tuesdays from 9 till 11 for Jazz Till Noon Till 11 with Ben and Matt. Just be careful not to wake the sleeping jazz musicians. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio with me Edward Kelsey Moore. Edward, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, T. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. And I should say we're taping the show. It's the 4th of April, 2013. Um, so now we've got the time capsule, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, Edward's in town uh, reading at Nicola's Bookshop um, over in Westgate, uh, one of our wonderful um, bookshops in town. Um, and it's your debut novel. It is. The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat. And before we go further, I'll read the short bio on the back to get things rolling. Edward Kelsey Moore lives and writes in Chicago, where he has enjoyed a long career as a cellist. His literary work often reflects both his life as a musician and his upbringing as the backsliding son of a Baptist preacher. Moore's short fiction has appeared in several literary magazines, including Indiana Review, African American Review, and Inkwell. His short story, Grandma, and the elusive Fifth Crucifix, was selected as an audience favorite on Chicago Public Radio's Stories on Stage. The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat is Edward Kelsey Moore's first novel. But Edward, you've been writing short stories since the high school years. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say, but um, there's a sort of a caveat, that, oh, okay. which is that I... I didn't start finishing short stories until I was 40. So <laughs> there was kind of a gap. So. Yeah. And so the, and then was the, was grandma, was that the first? Grandma was the very first short story I completed. And so that's kind of amazing and very honest of you, because I can say I have many starts and false starts <laughs> in some drawers <laughs> along the way. Yeah. Well, you know, most, most of my false starts, should should remain in drawers and and will remain in drawers, but uh, but some of them you know I I actually went back to and, and used them, but Grandma was the very first story that uh, that I completed. And was this one that you had started earlier on then, or was it sort of just it just got you writing again? You decided this. I had you know I'd had the idea for it. Um, well, what happened? I'll, I'll tell you the story. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the short version because it can go on. But um, 
What happened? We've got was, an hour. Okay. Oh, good. All right then. <laughs> That's a dangerous thing to tell me. Uh, what happened was uh, Chicago Public Radio had a short story contest every year, and uh, for that ran for a few years, and and I had I would listen to uh, the winners of the uh, contests uh, when they broadcast them on the series uh, stories on stage, and uh, and I was a big fan of the show and. Uh, I, I told myself, okay, well, the next time uh, this comes along, I'm going to enter it. And because I had decided when I turned 40 that, you know, this was the time. I, I, I couldn't wait any longer to start finishing the stuff that I wrote. And uh, so I I made up my mind I was going to enter this contest. So then the contest was advertised again one spring. And uh, I began a story for <laughs> for the contest. And... As had been my pattern for years, I did not finish it. But what happened was that uh, a few months later, I was hired to play uh, at a reception with a string quartet, and it was it happened that it was the reception for the winners of the of the contest. That uh, so oh fate yeah so WBZ you know have, has hired the string quartet, and uh, and I'm sitting there playing, and everyone is talking about how wonderful these stories were, and and how you know and. And it's they were. That, they and were. I'm sure they were wonderful. You know, <laughs> I, I don't remember anymore. I, I have wiped that from my memory. But uh, that's, that's also very writerly. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the competition? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> but so I I ended up, uh, you know, I, I sat there. There's two and a half hours of playing. And I'm just kicking myself the entire time. Just thinking, why didn't I? And it wasn't even that I w- thought I would win. But I was just furious that I didn't even try you know and that was the thing and i thought okay well uh, next year i will enter this thing and and i at at least know that i put something in the envelope and put it in the mail and that was the thing and um and i i it was a huge victory for me at the time just getting it in the mail and that i thought okay well this will get this out of my system and uh and then I, i won and and then I, then you know, you, some people you just can't give them any encouragement. It's a bad idea. And, um, so, and one sits before me today. Well, yeah, and, and there you go. There you more. go. I'm so glad though because then you went from like writing. So you wrote the short story, and then did you start working with the novel form, or no. did you start? Uh, I wrote a collection of short stories, and uh, that and so and several of them were published. Um, but uh, the collection never has, has never been published as, as a whole. But well, publishers listening out there, <laughs> hopefully Knopf, hopefully they won't. Um, we'll, we'll Michelle see. Summers won't be like, be quiet. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, these, so there's this collection of short yeah. stories, and and um, so I, I you know I, I love short stories actually, and I uh, and I don't I don't by any means think that it's easier to write a collection of short stories than to write a novel. Um, and well, I know that you know now that I've done both of those things, and I, in a lot of ways, for me, uh, short story writing highlights what what I think are frankly my problems as a writer, and so it's a bigger challenge for me, I think, to write um, you know really really solid short stories, and because they, they, you have to be so exact, and you know, and it's you have a little more breathing room, I think, with a novel, but. Anyway, I, and so, and so I, you I, had, I digress. So, no, no, not at all. No, this is this is great because so with the with the novel with that you can be more expansive or yeah. because you're moving through time here, mm-hmm. and so 
you have that. Like yes. it's harder maybe to do that in a short. I mean, you can do I've, things in short. Yeah, stories. at least for me, you know, uh, it was harder with with short stories because of of just the the, the precision that you need to really write a good short story. And you have to just, you know, be on your toes in a way that I think you don't have to be quite as much with a novel. You can you can take a little, you know, little side journey in a novel and indulge yourself a little bit. And you can't really do that. At least I can. Maybe, maybe you can right. with, a, with a short story. But And then in the novel, the, those, those side journeys or so maybe are even... Um, like even maybe particular characters that might be absolutely, absolutely. And I, you know, the thing is, you know, a lot of the writers I really love do that a lot, and so you know they they do those little you know wanderings a bit, and I and I find that fascinating, and uh, and so I I gave myself permission to do that, and uh, it. it and I, I like the way it turned out. And so. and yes, yes. And, and so many people do because now, right? Because you're That's, on the New York Times bestseller yeah, list. Yeah. And that, that was a lovely surprise. And you're going to London. Did I see that on and, your book yeah, tour to as well? Next week and in Germany right after that. So it's going to be very exciting. So it's, it's already translated into German. Then. Yes. It, uh, this it is, came this... out in German and, and Hebrew uh, over the last month yeah. so that's so you're gonna have quite a shelf of all the supremes at earl's all you can eat like with all these different yeah, languages I'm, I'm, really, I'm really looking forward to that i gotta say you know that's, a, that's another of the many things that i did not expect in this whole uh, journey and uh so i'm really just i'm very excited about that oh. <laughs> Well, later in the program, you'll be reading a, sh- a short piece, so people yes. will get a chance to hear it. And and hopefully, listeners, you had a chance to see Edward when he was at Nicola's Bookshop, too, in town. Um, well, let's go back to the, the short story for mm-hmm. a moment with that, that finishing. was um, How did you actually get yourself to, to finish, um, to to to. F- to finish that first one, like to actually complete it before you had a chance to put it in the envelope? <laughs> well, you know, I really, uh, you know, I joke about that experience with, you know, sitting there with the, with the string quartet, but it really was a kind of a big deal for me at the time. It was extremely upsetting. I, I'm, um, I'm not a person who says he's going to do something and then doesn't do it. Uh, if I really, if I tell myself, you know, okay, Ed, you're going to do this, it it makes me. I, it's, a, it's a quality I, I strongly dislike in others, mm-hmm. and and I, I dislike it even more if I do it, and because uh, you know it's, it becomes BS. You know, at a certain point, you uh, and I, you don't want to be a BSer. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you had two and a half hours of actually and I had to two sit and with a half it hours there, of, right? of telling myself that right. I had you know given myself a little dose of BS months earlier <laughs> by promising myself I was going to do something and not following through, and it uh, and I really, really disliked that feeling. And so I, I thought about that on and off throughout the year. You know, I thought, okay, well, you know, next. But of course, I gave myself a full year to, to get back to a short story. Right. What, did, like, you, did you start it that next week then, Edward? Like, no, did you or try I to... waited until the next year. <laughs> oh, seriously? Yeah, I waited until the next year. I, you know, I really was not in that world, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I certainly knew that there that other uh, short story contest must exist out right, there right. but i but i didn't bother to go and look for them <laughs> right well this was sort of this was what the what the stage you had set yeah. for yourself with the, this is how you were going to do it and, yeah. and this then, was the one i knew about and yeah and so i you know so the, the a year later i you know wrote uh 
the story that ended up uh, sort of beginning my career. Well, and as and did you also read a lot during that time too, yeah. or were I've, you sort I've of absorbing a, short stories, oh, yeah. like the form sort I, of? I, I've always been a, a reader. I think I saw in the acknowledgments that your mom gave you your your library card. Is that yeah. right? <laughs> this is uh, you know what I was when I was a kid. You know my uh, you know my family we didn't have a great deal of money, and but my mother was a big reader, and so you know you, you go to the library yeah. if, you, if you don't have money. And uh, I still love libraries to this day. I, 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 whenever I visit someplace and I go traveling, I, I go to the library. <laughs> I just, I just love them. And um, so when I was a kid, you know, it was a, I just remember we went to the library like a lot. And uh, the very first memory of my life is in the Indianapolis Public Library. And what uh, when I was, I guess it would have been uh, right around my fifth birthday, um, my uh, my mother took me to the library to get my first library card. And there was uh, so the thing, you had to be five years old to get your library card back then. And uh, But what I didn't know was that there was a, a little uh, sort of a hitch and that you you had to be able to write your name. And um, I didn't know how to write my name at that point. I knew how to make my letters, though. So my, And I, I was a very dramatic little boy. So I had a major meltdown. I screamed and had and this, like, in, was, the like, in the library. So it was a, a lot of drama. <laughs> right. Yes, a, a great deal, a great deal of drama. And my mother took me to the, to the, the main reading room of the Indianapolis Public Library, which is a beautiful, beautiful room. And it was sort of built in this, um, during one of the sort of Egyptian fads uh, and uh of the early uh, 20th century and so there are these sphinx heads on the uh, on the shelves and it's a, it's a really cool looking place and it's a, and uh, my mother took me there and taught me to write my name so i could get that library card and that's the first really clear memory of my entire life is sitting in that room with my mom learning to write my name wow then and, and there and i got and my were, library and card you were five that, years and I was old. five years old and i got my library card that day and um i've you know, but turned me into a, a major league reader. Yeah. So I've, I've always been a reader and, uh, and, I, and I've always had a library card. So. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> what did they say when they saw you reapproaching the desk? Oh, I'm sure they were they're like, like oh, oh my God. No. Here we go. No. What a great moment, though. And that and that's that's something like I feel like you, you could do um a, like a, a blurb, like a spot for like the, the public libraries of this country. You know, you know, like that's a story. Hey, if 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 I'm ever in a position that that would matter to somebody, I would love to. I'm, I you know, the public libraries are such an important thing. It's my life would be totally different without without libraries. You know, I, I love it. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been able to, certainly in the first, oh gosh, 25 years of my life, read you know, most of the things I've read. And, if it find, for and find them yeah. there. Because they're, 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 yeah. sometimes that's how you, you don't know what you're looking for. Absolutely. For example, on Amazon, maybe. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, and I was so, you know, I, I was so hooked. You know, my mother would just drop me off on a Sunday or Saturday morning and just say, see you later. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I think our families were similar. We're going <laughs> to take a short, short break today on Living Writers. Edward Kelsey Moore is here. His debut novel, The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back.
welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm C. Hetzel. This is Living Writers. Today on the program, Edward Kelsey Moore is here. His book, The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat, a novel. Um, and thanks to Text Behind the Glass and Michelle for getting Edward here safely <laughs> <laughs> to the studio at WCBN. Um, and we're playing uh, this uh, the, the cello piece. <laughs> Not by accident, really. But that's you're a musician yes, as well yeah. as a writer. Yeah, I've been a cellist for a long, long time. Yeah. So you you went to school for it, I and went now to, you're yeah to Indiana University and to the State University State University of New York. So. And now, and you're also a, a professor of music. Yes, now I, well, too. I had to leave my job because of the schedule of the book, but um, but until um, a few months ago, yes, I was. A teacher at Elmhurst College, and so do, so does that mean that now you're because you're working? I can I I read that you have a second project in the works. Yes. Is that a, your second novel? Or? I'm working on a second novel. Yes, and it's um you know at, so the schedule has become such with uh, with the traveling that even before the book came out, uh, I wasn't able to to be there like you should for you know, for your students and you know and so I had to stop teaching. I love teaching and I I really miss it and I'm hoping that when my schedule gets a little more sedate I can go back to teaching again. And how is this creative energy from the creating the the, the music? Do you think is it cuz it feels like it it must be s- some of the same creative energy that you're using for writing and maybe that's why you, you can't yeah, te- you know, teach because it'll drain some of that error. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, I, I still, uh, you know, I still perform, and um, as soon as I uh, get back from uh, this little uh, batch of touring, I'll be. Performing oh, you mean again. your international tour to London and Germany? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes the Just, little batch of touring, yes, you know. Yes. <laughs> Just was clarifying that. Okay. But, um, so, uh, but I, you know, I will be going back. I, I work with the Joffrey Ballet Orchestra in Chicago and with Chicago Sinfonietta, and uh, I'll be joining them again uh, later in the spring. But, uh, you know, I wrote most of this book, uh, like in the pit at the ballet, because, you know, that's uh, the time I had to do it. And so, you know, I, uh, during the intermissions, I'd st- sit in the pit and, and write, you know, longhand. And, um, I've, and I've and that's the same thing with the short story collection. I wrote most of that, you know, during breaks and uh, with the orchestra and things like that. So once you started writing, and once you sent that first short story off, and it was finished, mm-hmm. then it was sort of you were using any available time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you, uh, I'm sure you know, when you when you have a job and you have to, and you have to work, and uh, you, but you make up your mind they're going to write, then, you know, you, you write when you can. And it's, and I'd love to have the kind of schedule. Well, that's not even true. I'm going to say, I'd love to have this kind of schedule where I could write at the same time every day, but I wouldn't, frankly. I like uh, having a lot of freedom and, uh, and having a schedule that, that is not the same every day. And I, I think there's something about, uh, mind you, I, I don't know a different kind of life, but there's something about being in an atmosphere with a lot of creative people that is really invigorating. And I, uh, so when I'm around my colleagues, you know, they're all really talented people and they're all really smart people. And there's something about that that just gives you all this energy and that this, you know, creative energy is a real thing. And, uh, 
and that environment, I, is, I think, has really helped me. And you see, like, it almost becomes like, I'm, I must do it. It's not just a possibility. Oh, absolutely. It becomes, you know, the first, you know, it was there was a little more to it than my just, you know, enjoying writing the first story. I also got a little bit of attention from it. You know, I, uh, uh, an agent called me after uh, having read the, the story, and it was a, a, a a rather prestigious agent and um, not the agent that I ended up signing with, but, uh, but a, someone who had read it and uh, was very complimentary about it. So I sort of, you know, got this very positive feedback from a very unexpected source. And, you know, and so I thought, well, you know, Hey, if I, if I, if it's possible, then, you know, I'll, I'll give it a go. And so that it gave me, you know, a big push in that direction. And, you know, so I, I thought, okay, well, when can I write the book? You know, right. when you know, but between uh, performing and practicing and teaching, there wasn't a lot of the day left. And I thought, okay, well, I can write during those inevitable times when my students don't show up for their lessons, and I can write uh, in the intermissions uh, at the ballet or at a concert, and I can write at the breaks, you know, when I'm having rehearsals. So that's what I did. And so that, and so you had this plan, yeah, and, yeah. and you kept to it. That's I, I, you know, that was the thing. You know, I had to plan it because it, yeah. it wasn't just going to happen on its own. Right. So I, I really had to to make sure that I set aside the time you know, and the, the little bit of time I had. I think that's so good for everyone out there to hear too. <laughs> that's yeah, that was the only way I could do it, and uh, you know, that's especially you know. But I, you know, I say it like you know. When I discuss it with people, I tend to be talking with with older people, people around my age, or maybe slightly younger. So it, it becomes a conversation of, oh well, you know, I've got kids, or I've got, uh, I've got a job, I've got these various things. But um, everybody has something like that, you know. <laughs> maybe you're in school, maybe you're, you know. It, but there's never a, going to be a time in your life. I mean, I, well, I think ideally, there's never going to be a time in your life where where you have nothing to do, <laughs> and uh, so you you're always going to have to fit in writing, as you know, if you're a person who is not being paid to do it, right. um, you know, uh, then you've got to find a way. What was the first? Um, what was the first s- scene or character or image that came to you that started? The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat. Well, it really started actually with a conversation I had with a buddy of mine. And I, I can't remember how this conversation started. It, it, when I reflect on it, it, it must have started with a beer. But, the, uh, but somehow a friend of mine and I ended up in this conversation about courage. And then through the course of this conversation, we both agreed that the most courageous people we knew were women. Uh, and, and you know, he and I are both people who have great dads. You know, it wasn't like we didn't have, you know, really wonderful male role models. Um, I have a wonderful father. My friend had a great dad. Uh, but we just both, you know, we when we thought about the most courageous person we knew, it was a woman. And so from there, I thought, you know, what would it be like uh, well, first, to be a really courageous woman. And then also, uh, for the book, I thought, well, what would it be like if you really couldn't be afraid? You know, if you were just fearless from birth. And that, or, you know, or if you, or just, even if you weren't truly fearless, if you were told always that you were. And, you know, sort of grew up with this notion of yourself that 
other people thought of you as fearless. Thus Odette. And thus Odette. And Odette uh, was the, the fearless woman. And that was so, so I thought, hmm, well, how would you get that way? And what, you know, and what would that mean for you for the rest of your life? And that was how it began. And then when you're thinking that through, how did it start becoming part of a narrative you could tell instead of I, like these ideas, like these questions, like what yeah. did she come to you? Like almost like some of the ghosts in the, mm-hmm. the book. Up here, or what? Well, you know, I, it, so from there, actually, it was uh, when I was thinking about how she ended up that way uh, as a, as this fearless woman, uh, I thought, well, how would that happen? You know, how, 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 how would a, an adult, you know, identify, well, that, you know, our old child is, is going to be fearless. You know, what? So I thought, well, there have, there'd be some odd little circumstance to their birth. And then I thought about, oh, well, what might that be? And so I created a circumstance that, you know, that might lead someone to give her, you know, to ascribe that trait to her. And, um, and was that the first line that you wrote for the book? That was actually the very first line. It, I, d- it did not become the first line no. of the book. But y- yes, that the first was line of chapter two. the first line of chapter two was the first line I wrote. And can you, let's see, let's tell it. The first line of chapter two is, I was born in a sycamore tree. And, and uh, I wondered if that was the line that came to you. That was the it line. It has that force to mm. it and vision. Yeah. And it was, and for uh, most of the process of writing, it was the first line of the book. And then, uh, then the first chapter, you know, <laughs> sneaked in later. <laughs> how, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. How did it sneak in? How? Well, I wanted to introduce uh, Odette's mother before, and I wanted to place it actually in, I wanted the, the novel to be essentially uh, over the course of one year of, of Odette's life and the life of her two best friends. And so I wanted uh, not to begin at the, in 1950 when she's born, but to begin um, on an evening or actually an early morning um, in the year 2005. And starting with what seems like a hot flash, that's yes. key as well yes. for the scope of the year and exactly. the story. Well, let's take a short break. And then when we come back, would you mind reading for us, Edward? Okay. You're listening to Living Writers. Today on the program, Edward Kelsey Moore is here. The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat, a novel. We'll be right back. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Edward Kelsey Moore is here. Uh, the Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat, a novel. Um, so now, uh, now we're going to hear some of it. Um, what do we need to know, Edward, for the, um, the well, part that you're reading to us? This uh, part of the book is uh, told from Odette's point of view uh, in first person, and Odette is telling the story of how she ended up being known as the fearless girl. And uh, it begins, the chapter begins, like you, uh, like we mentioned a little while ago, with um, I was born in a sycamore tree. And uh, this, is, this part of the book is explaining just how Odette uh, ended up being born in that tree. Mama went to the witch expecting a potion or a poultice. Poultices were big among witches. But what she got instead were instructions. The witch told her that if she climbed up into the branches of a sycamore tree at straight-up noon and sang her favorite hymn, the baby would come. Witches were like that. They almost always mixed in a touch of something approved by the Baptist church, a prayer, a spiritual, or a chant warning of the godlessness of Lutherans. So people could go to a witch and not have to worry that they'd pay for it down the line with their immortal souls. It absolved the client's guilt and kept the preachers off the witches' backs. So on a windy afternoon, my mother hauled a rickety old ladder out to a sycamore tree by the woods behind the house. Mama propped her ladder against the tree and climbed up. Then she nestled herself in the crook of two branches as comfortably as was possible considering her, her condition and began to sing. Mama used to joke that if she had chosen something more sedate, something along the lines of Mary Don't You Weep or Calvary, she might not have given birth to such a peculiar daughter. But she dug her teeth into Jesus as a rock and swayed and kicked her feet with that good gospel spirit until she knocked over the ladder and couldn't get back down. I was born at one o'clock and spent the rest of the afternoon in the sycamore tree until my father rescued us when he got home from his shop at six. They named me Odette Breeze Jackson in honor of my being born in the open air. As it often happened when a child was born under unusual circumstances, old folks who claimed that they'd been schooled in the wisdom of the ancestors felt called upon to use the occasion to issue dire warnings. My grandma led the chorus in forecasting a dreary future for me. The way she explained it, if a baby was born off the ground... That child was born without its first natural fear, the fear of falling. That set off a horrible chain reaction, resulting in the child's being cursed with a life of fearlessness. She said a fearless boy had some hope of growing up to be a hero, but a fearless girl would more than likely be a reckless fool. My mother also accepted this as fact. But she leaned toward the notion that I might become a hero. It should be remembered, of course, that Mama was a grown woman who thought climbing a tree in the tenth month of her pregnancy was a good idea. Her judgment had to be looked on with suspicion. Nearly everyone, it seemed to me, believed that coming into the world in any manner that could be seen as out of the ordinary was a bad omen. People never said, Congratulations on managing to deliver a healthy baby while you were stuck in that rowboat in the middle of the lake. They just shook their heads and whispered to each other that the child would surely drown one day. No one ever said, 
Aren't you a brave little thing, having your baby all alone in a chicken coop? They just said that the child would turn out to have bird mess for brains, and then went on to treat the child that way, even if the kid was clearly a tiny genius. Like the doomed child born on the water, and the dummy arriving among fowl, I was born in a sycamore tree, and would never have the good sense to know when to run scared. Thank you, Edward. Thank you for reading that. I'm so glad you did. I loved that that section. Um, there's so there, and there's so many moments where your your voice, uh, well, the writer, uh, the, some of like the commentary that gets in there, like the um, I had to turn away from the mic so I wasn't laughing um, over over the mic, um, but sort of this. Um, a moment where you're commenting on how well the mom the mom believed it but she didn't she had the sense to go up that she also went up yes. the tree to begin with so there's yeah. just these great mo and that's not unusual that's something that's um part of the the piece it's sort mm -hmm. of the the rhythm of how the language is working within yes. the storytelling absolutely is is that I guess is that so it seems it's it's obviously a conscious decision is is that mm. the way you tell stories or is that yes <laughs> or even how you kind of hear stories in a way yeah. maybe how I mean, stories are told I love that ebb and flow of storytelling and you know I grew up around a lot of really good storytellers and there's a way you know that when you're around a great storyteller when they talk you know that you you're taking on this little journey and they sometimes sort of wander a little bit, but, but, you know, you get back to where you were, you know, you're, it's all part of the journey. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, wait, what were we talking about, Edward? I don't remember. What were you talking oh, storytelling. I think. Story okay. Is that right? The ebb and flow of storytelling. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. So let's see. How can we get back to that? Well, maybe, um, what are, what are, Edward, what are some of the, the favorite stories you remember actually hearing that made you think about, you know, maybe want to be a storyteller. Um, well, you know, um, when I was a kid, I had a great aunt. And actually, the the first story, the uh, Grandma and the Elusive Fifth... It's hard to say. Yes. Grandma and the Elusive Fifth Crucifix um, was actually uh, based on an experience that I'd had with my great aunt. And I, I was quite close to her when I was a kid. And uh, she and I hung out a lot, you know, and she was a really wonderful old lady. And she loved going to funerals. And she was, she was one of those old ladies that found funerals really entertaining. And uh, so she would go to funerals of people she just barely knew. And she, and she would really judge them harshly afterwards. So she, she would... Uh, like the funerals, not the, the people who the, passed the on, right? Yeah. The funerals. So it was really more judgment of the families, you know, because, you know, because they'd thrown this awful funeral, but she just was, she was just very upset if someone didn't, didn't do the funeral properly. Well, she was a bit of a connoisseur at this she point. Was, oh, absolutely. So. She was an absolute connoisseur. And so she would, uh, you, you know, you would hear from her. She'd get, you know, she'd put on a wonderful outfit and a, and a giant hat and go to a funeral. And she would come back and she would just, you know, she would, oh, my goodness, that was just shameful. And she would, <laughs> and then she would tell a story, you know, and, and she would imitate everybody and she would tell you exactly what they what they did. And she um, would talk about, you know, who cried and who didn't cry and, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, and 
and what a shame it was that so and so couldn't muster a tear, or like, or that, or that so and so cried so much that you just knew it was fake, you know. And so it was all this. She was, she was a delightful person, but she, this was, you know, but if you didn't do right at the funeral, you were going to be harshly, harshly judged by her. And I loved that. I, I would, I even when I was like eight years old, I would listen to her tell these stories about these funerals, and I just thought it was incredible. So. Uh, and this, a certain truth too, right? Because it was her truth oh, of that, absolutely. which is what storytelling absolutely. Is. She was. I mean, this was important to her. It wasn't. You know, it was funny to me, and <laughs> and and you know, and she and she was a great storyteller, and she loved liked to make people laugh. But she, you know, this was a big deal to her, and uh, and it was to a lot of women of her generation, you know, uh, that especially a lot of poor people of that generation. You know, uh, the one moment of glamour of your life was after you were dead. (laughs) And uh, so it was a big deal that that was done properly. And so she she talked about that a lot. And so uh, the the story, uh, the the first short story I completed, uh, Grandma and the Elusive Fifth Crucifix, was about a grandson who spends time with his grandmother and she goes to these funerals and she actually has a system of rating them from one to five crucifixes. And that, uh, so that was the well, first story. Well, I have story. to read this story. It's a fun story. It's, it's, a, it's a funny story. And, uh, and this was based on your great aunt. And that was based on my great aunt. So, so you were able to hear, were you able to like sort of capture her voice for the dialogue? Yes. Yeah. So that a lot of, a lot of it was very much from, based on her. And, and certainly the way that she told stories, I spent a lot of time with her. Uh, and uh, my, you know, my mother's mother had passed away she was one of her sisters and uh so she was really the only grandmother i knew and uh she was a, a real presence in my life she lived next door to us for many years and that's then, so lucky and then lived in our home for for quite a while so uh you know she was a really fascinating person and uh and and the way that she told stories had was a huge influence on me and i certainly hear her voice in the supremes also that uh, that way of telling a story. She taught me how to tell stories, and uh, and so I think I still very much tell stories in the style that she taught me to. And it sounds like she was one of the strong women, the courageous uh, women. Absolutely, she was a tough, tough broad. You know, and the, you know, there's a there's a way that, especially you know, she was a, from a, a farm, and you know, and these are people who, when you think about, she was born, I guess, in the. Uh, right around the turn of the century, around 1900, and you know, lived well into uh, the I guess into her 90s. So, uh, you know, th- when you think about the the kind of life that that you know that encompasses that the changes in the world, that you have to be tough to survive that kind of thing. If you're you know you're poor, poor black woman from Kentucky, you know, uh, it's going to see a lot in that period of time. And uh, and she did, and she you know had this incredible life, and she loved to tell the story of it, and I you know it was a real inspiration to me, and it's again continues to be. And it seems like she also kept her sense of humor because Absolutely. there's so like. But you know, I think I I really believe that when people, if someone really survives something, you know, uh, and comes out the other side, you know, intact, that they, they tend to have a sense of humor. You know, I think. It, if you can, you know, get through something and perhaps come out worse for it and come out truly damaged, uh, if you don't have a sense of humor about it, I think. But I think if you really survive something and come out of it, you know, okay, you have to, at some point, 
get a get a you know a, a, a grip on the comedy of it. Right, you right. know, at least that's 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 been my experience. Though, at it, least, and it feels like the experience that you've infused into the Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat. Yes, absolutely. Because you're you're going from the you're telling you're not shying away from telling the story of the what you have to survive. Yeah. You know, but I think that's, you know, there's a lot of uh, sort of flights of fancy in this uh, in this book, but a lot of it is very much about uh, about real life, you know, about the things that people face in real life. You know, you uh, falling in and out of love, having uh, dealing with illness, dealing with death of the people we love, you know, uh, but a lot of that stuff is you know, when you're trying to process it, uh, I know, and for me, when I try to deal with the difficult things in my life, um, I deal with them with a lot of humor. And that tends to be where I go. And it, it, it's so much a part of who I am that uh, I'm usually thinking, you know, this is really awful right now, but, you know, in mid-June, I'm going to find this hilarious, you know? <laughs> and, this is, is going to get me through the next yeah, six months, the exactly. comedy of this moment. This, you know, I'm going to I'm, I'm gonna be able to laugh at this one of these days because it's funny. If if I weren't me and weren't living this, I, I might be able to find part of this funny. So that's interesting because it's almost like you are able to like have this out of like this separate experience, which I'm wondering doesn't isn't a reason why you use ghosts like the role of ghosts in the in in the supreme center yeah well that's part of it um there's also you know these people have known each other for so long and there's that way that a lot of times when we are talking to close friends that uh, we're also sort of re-experiencing these moments that we've had with them you know over you know 20 30 40 years and uh, and I huh. thought of that, you know, with these ghosts, I really felt that there were more sort of reminders of this past that is always with the characters. And they're, you know, that, that dinner you have with your friend today, if, if it's an old, old friend, it's also about the dinner you had in 1984, you know. And uh, for me, the ghosts are really much more about this reminder that uh, that the past is really alive for for the for people who've known each other and cared for each other for a long long time and sort of those type of friends those those friends are they remind you of who you are absolutely often, even if you've forgotten and absolutely some way. even if you don't want to remember oh, right. yeah. Those. <laughs> those two. yeah what yeah. about eleanor roosevelt though well, <laughs> <laughs> or, or should we take a short break and hear about break. <laughs> Okay, and maybe we'll hear about. We'll see. We'll see. You're listening to Living Writers. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Edward Kelsey Moore is here. The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat, a novel, is the book on the table. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You've got living writers today on the program. Edward Kelsey Moore is here. The Supremes at Earl's All You Can Eat, a novel. Um, so we were just talking about ghosts and Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> and isn't she the first ghost that, that we know of, I think, as a mm-hmm. reader that makes an appearance because it's the first ghost her yes. Odette's mom sees? Yes. Um, she's the first ghost. And, you know... <laughs> A lot of people have asked me about her. Uh, it honestly, it came about just because I, uh, I thought it was funny. You know, I thought the the notion of Eleanor Roosevelt, who you know this incredible woman and had this uh, you know incredible life and was and did this a lifetime of good works. Uh, and the, I, not laughing at that, she did. Yeah. I'm in total agreement. But the, I just had this. I just thought it was a funny thing. If well, what if? You know, after death, she decides instead she's just going to get drunk and smoke a lot of dope and cause trouble. And I thought it was funny. And then uh, she sort of uh, she developed some other traits as time went by. But uh, but mostly she just likes to, you know, get drunk and smoke dope and cause trouble. <laughs> and then and and then and have like a flask with the presidential seal yeah, on so, it. Nice, well, why wouldn't nice she? Touches. You know? <laughs> why wouldn't she? If, if, if I had one, I would. That's, that's how I drink too. So. But, in a way, but in a way, it's interesting that that's the one the, that Odette's mom sees mm-hmm. that she comes in and is like a you know. She's the first ghost that Odette's mother sees. Because there is there's something. Because it is it's hilarious and unexpected. It's you know, but that that kind of stuff is just fun to write. It, and, yes, yeah. So. Yeah. So and and because there's so many, it also might act as like a balancing mechanism, Edward. Yeah. Because there's so many really serious moments. Yeah. I want, uh, I didn't, when, when this, when I thought about, thought about, uh, what I wanted to happen throughout this book, uh, the first things I thought about were actually rather serious things. You know, each of these women, uh, Odette, Barbara Jean and Clarice have, some very, very serious things that they're dealing with. And uh, and I thought, you know, I don't want to write a book that bums everybody out. And uh, Well, that's also, I think, what you wouldn't think the true story of mm-hmm. characters' lives yeah. would be. Well, yes, exactly. There's, so there's, uh, you know, you would, even though they're going through these serious things, it wouldn't be accurate to have them just be about those serious things. You know, there's, there's so much more to them and they know that there's so much more to them. And part of the, the, the wonderful uh, aspect of this friendship is that they remind each other that there's more to them than these difficulties throughout their entire friendship from the beginning of the friendship on, on until middle age. And I, and that part of it, you know, I think it's really just very real. I think whenever you have a a really good friendship, the people, uh, you know, your, your friends help you to be a, a better version of yourself. You know, they help you to see beyond whatever this difficult thing you're dealing with is. Even if you are doing something where you're in the wrong and and you are, you know, making a mistake, messing things, you know, up, messing yeah. up, especially at those times. I think that's what really good friendships do for us. They just really help us to sort those things out and to 
um, and to become, you know, like I said, better versions of ourselves. And this seems to be the story that you're interested in. in Definitely. In telling. I'm, I am, I really like, uh, I'm just as a person and as a writer, I'm interested in what people do to get through their lives with a sense of dignity and decency. And, uh, and that's and because that's a tough thing to do, frankly, if, to to maintain that, you know, especially if you don't have necessarily the best setup for it, you know. Um, and I'm a little more interested in that, no, considerably more interested in that than I am in what uh, an evil person does just for the pleasure of of being evil, although. There are plenty of books that people write about that that I enjoy reading. And other people, you know, other writers can do that so well. But uh, I've, but for me, um, in what I, you know, what I want to bring out into the world is, uh, is something about, you know, what, what, what is it that makes somebody uh, survive this life and survive it in a way that they can live with? You know, whether it's the way that I would, want to do or, or not that that is interesting to me it's more interesting to me than than just you know w- what it takes to be a jerk and you know i'm, I'm trying to avoid other words when i say that but um you know thanks but because <laughs> the fcc yeah yeah i have to take a pause jerk yes that's that's what i mean but you know i'm um, not that you know again not, there are plenty of books that i love reading that are about awful awful people and there are some quite unpleasant people in my novel but they don't interest me, frankly, as much as as the people who are really trying to do something uh, with their lives and for and for the people they love, and you know that that that's more interesting to me, frankly. When, so, when you were starting to imagine this story, did you already have a sense of some of the troubles? Or did you realize, because I would imagine that as the characters were developing, then it would be, was it hard then to complicate their lives, like, or do it, do that to mm. them, like have them go yeah. through this or. Well, yeah. The troubles came first, fortunately, <laughs> because, because really, you know, I, I came to really like them. Yes. And, uh, it would have been harder if I'd written instead, if I, be- if I'd begun with the friendship and, uh, and with the, uh, the lovelier aspects of these three women, it would have been much harder for me to bring illness infidelity and substance abuse into their lives and uh you know it's because you know you think gee you know i don't want to do this to her she's so nice but you know but if you begin with these very very difficult things if you you know you begin with someone who has had suffered a tremendous loss then you can say okay well you know maybe maybe she's funny too and maybe maybe she can have a moment where she gets to just laugh and uh and that to me you know, it made it a lot easier. It's like, okay, I can do this for her. And Edward, when you, how important is it with it's Cause it's, cause this is in the title. So, mm-hmm. so how important is it? I don't know. I should probably be able to figure that out. But when you're creating the setting for, for your characters, Mm-hmm. lives and, and we already alluded to how you're sort of moving from um the present to the past mm-hmm. and moving around in time so that's happening um but the 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 all you can eat and this 
this particular the setting mm-hmm. is that another character too yeah it it certainly became another character and uh because it what this place me- means to these characters really it means the the all you can eat this diner that they meet at every sunday for years and for decades uh it has a tremendous meaning to these characters uh, when they're young, when they're, they're teenagers, and and also when they're middle aged, you know they've they've grown up there. They're, they've brought their children there at a certain point, and and even grandchildren at, at uh, towards the end of the book. But uh, so these people have this tremendous connection with this place. The place has a its own history. You know, uh, they begin going there in nineteen six, uh, yeah, in the nineteen sixties, and they you know during the civil rights movement, this place happens to be the first black-owned business in this tiny southern Indiana town. And so it has, you know, its its own place in history. And that, as a, that serves as a backdrop for these, you know, the, for the teenage angst that these kids bring in and then these, uh, you know, grown-up problems that come later. And and so it really, it's it seems like when you're speaking of this place, for example, mm-hmm. that it's like you, you seem like you're very alive about it. Is it how um, do you have a place like that as as well, Edward? Like, is it something like or you think or is this from the imagined world or is it like that blending that often happens? It's, or the it's a, sort of a blending that? of things. You know, uh, there were places that I that I remember going to with my parents after church when I was a kid. You know, we would go to a little buffet and we would see a lot of people from church and wave at them across the room, you know. And so I had that in my mind, but, you know, but I wasn't from a small town, you know. Uh, and Yeah, you were from Indianapolis, from Indianapolis it sounds like, yes. And, uh, you know, I was in the, in the suburbs, but it was not at all, you know, it wasn't a rural place. And uh, I, but, you know, I, when I created Plainview, it was really sort of a combination of places. And there's a little town that my mother's family had a farm in, in, in Kentucky, and uh, which I barely knew. You know, we went down there for family reunions. And, you know, I saw a church, a house, and a field. You know, that was like my <laughs> knowledge of the place. And anything I, you know, anything else about the town, you know, I, was an, all what I imagined. That's that's it. It's But that was enough. Because yeah. then it became the imagined place. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that... You know, I, I imagined this, you know, this little place set in hills. You know, um, I was from Indianapolis. There aren't any hills, really. And, Different uh, part of the state. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, you know, but that I remembered, you know, when we go down to Kentucky, seeing all these hills, you know. And so I thought, oh, yeah, this town must be surrounded by hills, you know, in southern Indiana and northern Kentucky. There, you know, these sort of hilly uh, landscape and. And these, you know, rivers going through, you know, there's, there's no river up, you know, there's a, a, a canal in Indianapolis. But uh, so, you know, all of that stuff just sort of came together. And um, have you and, have you driven down there now? Like, I wonder it would be so crazy. So well, strange. You know, uh, I, to I went off to uh, uh, to the Sewanee Writers Workshop last summer and uh, and, I, and I drove down, you know, the. From Chicago to uh, to Tennessee, so you know I drove through that area on the way. And uh, did you see a plane view? <laughs> I you know I I saw a couple of plane views. Yeah. And uh, but you know I'm glad that I didn't see them before I wrote the book because then I would have felt you know contained by yeah. it in a way. 
I would have felt, you know, because as it is, I got to put whatever I wanted in this town and got to, you know, create this sort of bizarre little landscape for it and these sort of weird, you know, uh, these weird natural features of these these, these leaning trees that uh, they, they're, the characters are from an area of the town called Leaning Tree, <laughs> where the trees actually are leaning over. And I got to, you know, create that and, you know, and make up these things and uh, that I think I would have felt, you know, Maybe I can't do that. It's a little silly, you know, if, I, if I'd actually seen these towns. And how long were you in this, like, creating this novel, Edward? What was the, like, when you started writing this? What was um, the time about frame? two and a half years uh, of sort of working steadily on it between between that, between the beginning of the novel and uh, when uh, – it was acquired by the publisher. And, so, and revising it through. And what, what are you working on now? Because you said there's another a, another novel there's in another the works. Novel. And uh, right now, it does uh, it continues one uh, storyline from the book, but uh, it, there are it's a right now it has a very different feel from this book, and uh, we'll see what we what we end up with. But it's I, I think it's I think it's going to be fun. I'm, I'm hoping. And are you having fun doing it now? Because now you're I, not. I will. Are you writing? But you're not writing in the pit right now. No, are I'm not you? writing in the pit. Because you've it's got a this time. Thing. So between the stops on the yeah, tour and it's, the. It's a different kind of thing right now. And But, you know, uh, the first draft is tough for me. I I love revising. I just I just think it's fun. And maybe so, you know, a lifetime of practicing maybe it sort of set me up for that. But I it it's just that's the fun for me. Because you get immediate gratification, you know, things are better an hour later. And as opposed to when you're doing a first draft, when you're just throwing a whole bunch of really lame words into a big <laughs> pile, you know. And uh, so right now it's not the fun time of writing. But uh, but I think the book is going to be a fun book. And you're I guess you're discovering some of the imagined world, like what it makes it. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Thank you so much, Edward, for thank being you, on. Thank you, T. This has been loads of fun. We'll come back anytime. Yay. You're always invited. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Living Writers. Thanks again to Tex for engineering. Um, today on the program, uh, Edward Kelsey Moore, his novel, The Supremes at Earl's, All You Can Eat. Um, thanks for listening, everyone out there. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, April 24th, 2013. In Mountain View, California, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up in Bangladesh, more than 100 workers are killed and hundreds more injured following the collapse of a garment factory building. As activists continue pressure on government officials to pass immigration reform, two significant court decisions this week could affect U.S. deportation policy. And a Yemeni activist travels to Washington to testify at the Senate's first hearing on the targeted killing program. He says drones are killing civilians and making the region more dangerous. Those stories and more coming up. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. 
As Pakistan's caretaker government prepares national elections, violence aimed at secular left-wing candidates and election workers has increased. The past 36 hours has seen eight elections-related bombings. The Taliban is suspected to be behind the attacks. FSRN's Gabe Matthews reports from Pakistan. Soon after Pakistan's caregiver government announced it would conduct free and fair elections, Taliban militants issued warnings to three left-wing parties. Over the past two days, violence against campaign workers has increased. There have been eight bomb blasts in three provinces. Twelve people are dead and dozens have been injured. Ghulam Bulur, a ministerial candidate running as a member of the left-wing Uwami National Party, lost one of his brothers in a Taliban bomb attack in December. Bulur escaped that attack. But today, his election workers were once again targeted. I am not afraid of the attacks and killings. I am deeply grieved for the young dead people and my security guard. I openly tell Taliban militants to kill me if you think that will allow you to win power and bring Sharia law. But I beg you to forgive the young people and stop killing these innocent youth. Elections are scheduled for May 11th. I'm Sean Rang, reading for Gabe Matthews in Peshawar. The trial